continue reading from Philippians chapter 3 and where we're starting today at verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Good morning. My name is Rick and it's great to be with you here this morning. I'd love to add my welcome to Isaac's, whether you're here in the building or online, whether you're here with us each week or for the first time, it's great that you can join us. I think during COVID is a great opportunity while we're not handing out church Bibles to get into the habit of bringing your own Bible to church. Uh, that serves two good purposes. One, so that you can follow along um, as we're looking at it together, although I'll ask Lockie if he's quick to flick up the verses on the screen as I refer to them. But secondly, also, it's excellent, I think, to become familiar with your own Bible. Uh, there's something about knowing where things are on the page uh, that, that helps you to remember it for next time, and so I encourage you to be doing that. But let's pray as we continue to look at God's Word together. 
Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit will be so at work in us now that you will fill us with a knowledge and a trust in the goodness and the riches of knowing your son, Jesus, that we may live for that and that they may captivate our vision for life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to be doing something that is my goal that we will do at least once every year. And that is we are going to be talking about money. We're going to be talking about our attitude to money, about what kind of priorities and goals we should have in regards to money, how we should use and spend our money. And at the end, I will touch a little on how our attitude to money could make a difference for how we are financially committed to the ministry of the gospel that goes on through us here at Richmond Anglican Church. So that's kind of one point where we're heading to, but that's not why we talk about money. This is not a fundraising appeal to boost our church budget. We talk about money because our attitude to money is a vital part of the Christian life. You know, Jesus spoke about money more than almost any other topic, and he didn't do any fundraising. He knew that money was a vital spiritual issue, a significant spiritual issue, one that impacts directly on our love for God, on our contentment and satisfaction and confidence in God, on our willingness to live for God, regardless of how much money we have and what we do with it, our attitude to money matters. When Jesus spoke about money in his Sermon on the Mount, he talked about money as being like a rival God. He said, you cannot serve both God and money. And he wasn't just talking to the rich when he said that. He was talking to people even who were struggling to put food on the table and clothes on their back. Although he did have some particular things to say to the rich. But anyone can make a false god, can make an idol out of money, no matter how much or little of it we have. Whoever we are, money and our attitude to money can have a significant impact on our faith. And so it's good. Don't you think that we spend a day, I mean, at least a day each year talking about money, independent of any particular need, because it's a spiritual issue as well as a practical one. So having said that, I want to take us to our passage that we've just read, the second one that we read in Philippians chapter 3 that we're going to be looking at today. And you might have noticed that that passage doesn't actually mention money at all. So why are we looking at this passage when we're talking about money. I've chosen this passage because I think what we read here actually gives us an antidote to our love of money. It gives us an antidote to our love of money. And it does this by showing us the goodness of what we have in Jesus rather than the goodness of what we seek in money. And we need to believe that we have this goodness in Jesus if we're going to get our attitude to money right. It's kind of like my dog when he's got something in his mouth and he's chewing something that he shouldn't be, which is pretty much every day for him at the moment. I mean, yesterday he was chewing on a can of spray paint. I mean, what? It's not good for him. It's not good for the spray can. It's not good for the house. It's not good for anyone. And I still remember 
when we just got him, the trainer saying the best thing to do when he's chewing something that he shouldn't be is to show him something better that he would rather be chewing on. So he wants that instead. You know, his chew toy or a nice juicy bone, show him that instead because that's better. It's a bit like that with us and money, with Jesus and money. We will learn to think about money right if we see the goodness of what we have in Jesus is so much better. That will change our priorities. It will challenge our worldliness and it will show us a vision for real life that we can have in Jesus. And so how could that not affect our attitude to money and what we do with money? Now, because this is a somewhat topical talk, we're just going to be dipping into this passage at points. But the first thing we're going to look at is the desire of the Christian life. The desire of the Christian life. What should we want in life? Verse 10 gives us a very simple description of what the Apostle Paul desires in life. What does he want? He says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. That's what he wants. That's, that's what has captured his desire for life, to know Christ. I mean, we often talk about desires and wants as if they have a life of their own. It's something that's instinctive to us. I can't help what I desire. It's just, it's just what it is. It's just what I want. And, and maybe I'll choose to pursue those desires or choose to resist those desires, but the desire itself, I can't, I can't help that. It's instinctive. And maybe there's something in that. But, but I want to suggest that we learn to desire what we are convinced is good. Let me say that again. We learn to desire what we are convinced is good. And so often our wrong thinking and wrong attitude and wrong action when it comes to money is because we are convinced that money is where I will find the good life. And, of course, that begins to control my desires. Of course, that becomes the focus of what I want in life, both my joy and my dissatisfaction when I don't have what I want. That's the lure, the attraction of the good life and the promise that really enjoying life is actually connected to my financial means. That's the promise that we believe without even trying, right? We just believe that instinctively. Life would be better if I had just a bit more. It would give me freedom to do those things that I love to do. You know, without having to say, oh, that's too expensive. Those life experiences that I see other people having, but I can't afford. It's out of reach. Or to buy those things that I want to buy without having to settle for something cheaper or, or, or missing out altogether. Or simply the comfort and security of feeling like life is under control because my finances are under control. That's the promise of the good life. Life would be better, easier, less stressful, more fun if money wasn't really an issue. And so because I believe that money is the key to the good life, well, of course, I battle with envy as I flick through the travel magazine, although that's less of an issue now with COVID, isn't it? I guess COVID's helped with that. But even with COVID, I mean, you know, I see another friend on Facebook who's doing something that I wish I was doing, that I wish I could afford to be doing. Or I see the stuff that other people have, or 
I see the lifestyle, the eating out that other people are doing. My life would be better if I had more of that. That's the attraction, the allure of money that promises the good life, a promise that is so easy to believe. That becomes what our heart longs for, even while we know that that's actually not where real life is to be found. And so a right attitude to money is never going to start with some rule about how much we should give. It begins with really believing the goodness of knowing Jesus so that that becomes our desire for life and everything else then follows that desire. We need to be captured by a better vision for life. Paul wants us to realise that knowing Christ is infinitely good to the point where everything else pales in comparison. So back in verse 8, he says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul desired to know Christ because he knew that there was nothing better. Everything else seemed a loss by comparison. He has tasted that the Lord is good and it has made him hungry for more. And again in verse 10, he says he wants to know Christ, yes, the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. I mean, we instinctively feel, don't we, that money has power. And to a degree, I guess it does. Money gives us a certain freedom and control, or at least it seems to, over our life. Power to choose the things that I do and don't do. That's part of its attraction. But that's not the power that occupies Paul's attention. Paul is preoccupied by an even greater power. And you see down in verse 19 how petty and short-sighted it seems to have desires focused on what we can put in our stomachs. He says those whose minds are on earthly things, their God is their stomach. When we have something so much better, Paul knows that the power that physically raised Jesus from the dead, that power, the power that will raise us also from the dead, that will transform our bodies and our lives and our world. Money can't do that. That's the power that he's obsessed with. Power that will genuinely, without any of the false promises that money can make, it will genuinely create the good life. Not just the trinkets that we value now, but the truly good life. Enjoying the goodness of perfect relationship with God and with other people in his perfect new creation. And Paul sees that power and he knows that that's already at work in him now. It's making him someone who is fit for that new creation. And it's working through him to bring others into that as well. And Paul says, that's what I want to know. He knows how good that is. And so he wants to know it all the more. And to use the language that we so easily associate with money, he wants to invest in that. So much so that he can even say, in verse 10, I also want to know the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings. The fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings. Knowing Jesus is so good, he says, that even suffering for that is good. Because it brings us closer to Jesus. Because it makes us more like Jesus. Because it strips away those other confidences that we might have, those other things that we might love, so that we know his goodness all the more. 
and that we long for his return all the more. This is what Paul wants and desires and longs for more than anything else. And this is where we need to start if we're going to get our attitude to money right. We need to be captured by a better vision for life, one that is more attractive than money, so that the allure of money loses its shine because we're convinced that knowing Jesus gives us something better. It gives us contentment rather than dissatisfaction, rather than anxiety or or grasping. It gives us generosity rather than stinginess. And it frees us to use money to love and serve God and other people rather than loving money and serving money as we try and grasp for that elusive good life that money promises. I want to know Christ and to be enriched in knowing him. That's the desire of the Christian life. The second thing that we're going to see here is the progress of the Christian life. Because I wonder if that desire of the Christian life sounds great, but it just sounds like an ideal that is out of reach. You know, I'd love to be like that, but I just can see that I'm not, and I can't see myself getting there. It seems impossible. I I feel like the kid who dreams of competing at the the Olympic Games, but then I look at myself and I actually can't run 10 metres without tripping over my own feet. And I think, what's the point? It seems impossible. And so we kind of dismiss that ideal as being for the super-Christians, maybe someone else, like the Apostle Paul, but that's not me. But the Christian life is not about having arrived at some spiritual ideal. It's about seeing the goodness of that goal and pressing on in that direction. And that's exactly what Paul says in his next words in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained all this, verse 12, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Press on towards the goal, even if we're not there yet, particularly if we're not there yet. As I said, I think for most of us, we know in theory that the good life doesn't come from our financial prosperity. And that's not what we want our life to be about, right? We don't want our life to be about pursuing money. We want to love God rather than money. We want to be generous with what God has given us and use it to serve him rather than chasing those things that money can buy. We want to trust him in all areas of life, including money, and not be anxious about money or find confidence in the size of our bank account. We want to be like that. But that gap, as I said, between that ideal and where we see ourselves now, it seems so big that I think, well, I I can't be like that. It seems out of reach and distant. It seems intangible. And the things that money can provide now, that seems very tangible, very present. And so we kind of maybe give up on that ideal and we settle for second best 
That is, instead of seeking to have our hearts transformed by a love for Jesus rather than a love for money, just tell me how much I should give. Just give me some rules or some guidelines so that I can say, tick that box and move on. We must not settle for that. The Christian life has the goal always ahead of us and not having reached it yet is meant to be a motivation, not a discouragement. Or maybe you think of yourself at the other end of that spectrum, that I have already dealt with the issue of money in my life. I don't have an issue with idolising wealth. I've worked out my giving But then the result is the same. I've ticked that box so I can move on. Again, we must not settle for that. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal. I press on, I strive, I push in that direction. So what is it that you are striving for? What are you straining towards Does eager striving best describe your desire to know Jesus all the more? Or does it actually more accurately describe your financial striving and the dreams of where you might be in 5, 10, 15 years? I mean, have I got this backwards? Content to plod along in my Christian life, but actually striving financially always looking for the next thing that money can buy or the next savings goal or the next experience. So when I compare my financial desires and my spiritual desires, which one am I more likely to actually sit down and set concrete goals for, for the future and to rearrange my life according to those goals? Makes me think of a number of years ago, our family went away on a big holiday to New York you know, it's, a, it's expensive to go as a family to New York and it was a big deal. And so we spent four years saving up for that. Every month we, we put aside some money and we changed our budget, we tightened our belt so that we could put aside that money so that we could afford it after, after those four years because we were saving up. And as I think about it, that's something that we tend to do, right? It's a common thing to do that we make financial plans for the future And I change my life and my spending now to fit that. But as I think about that, this has really challenged me. Do I do that same sort of thing out of my conviction about the goodness of knowing Jesus? Does my giving have that same kind of concrete planning and and rearranging my life because I want to live for Jesus and not just the things that money can buy? Because my true desire in life is to know Christ and to see others know him too. Is that desire driving my first decision as I work out my budget for the week or the month or the year? Or is that the last decision that I make once I've worked out everything else and see what's left over? Now, I thought I might um, spend a moment now and finish with a couple of examples of what it might look like to have knowing Christ for myself and others as a motivating desire for life that does lead me to make changes and to find joy in that and the goodness that that can bring. I've got two examples. One is an example from somebody else that I've seen and another one is something that we can be a part of together. 
So nearly 20 years ago, a couple that I know received an inheritance and they decided that they were going to use that inheritance to help them buy their first home. But the first thing that they did was that they took $50,000 of that inheritance and donated it to a Bible college in Africa. And then they started looking for a house. And they found one that was perfect and $50,000 too expensive. And so they couldn't afford it. And there was nothing else that they could afford either and so they weren't able to buy a house at that point. But then six months later the sellers came back to them and said, actually, we'll accept that price that you've offered us. And so they were able to get the house after all. And I heard that story and, and it made me think, what a great example of trusting God with money and God providing with, you know, with something big, something significant. And that's true. But it occurs to me as I think about it, that there's something, something else going on there, something even better. It occurs to me that the real joy for those people was not the house, it seems to me that the real joy was the nearly 20 years now of the partnership in the gospel that they've had with that Bible college in Africa. Nearly 20 years of seeing fruitful ministry and knowing that they were partners with them in that, that they could rejoice with them in what they have seen there, even more than the house that they've been living in in that time. I mean, that, that's one example of investing in the goodness of knowing Jesus. My second example is to do with us here at Richmond Anglican Church. Now, I've been at this church at Richmond Anglican for just a few months now, but already I'm seeing the amazing potential of what God is doing among us, what he's already doing and what he has been doing, and the potential for what he could do, what he might do in us and through us in the future. And just for some examples, I see the youth and the kids ministry and the amazing work that the leaders are doing there. And particularly on Friday nights, I see so many of those youth and kids are from families that don't know Jesus. And I think what an amazing potential to see their lives transformed and their families' lives transformed and through that even beyond. That sounds to me like something worth investing in. I see the local schools in our area and the opportunities that we have to be involved in teaching scripture in SRE. And again, for some of those kids, this is the only time, the only place where they hear about Jesus. That sounds to me like something worth investing in. Or as I think about where we live, we live in, in Hobartville, and as I take the dog for a walk around the neighbourhood and I pass so many people, so many houses filled with people who don't know Jesus... And I think, how can we invest in reaching them? What a great opportunity that is. And that's just one suburb of the many in our area. Or here, as I look among us, I see so many people eager to serve each other and to grow and to build each other up. That's something worth investing in. Two weeks ago, we talked about the opportunities we have to partner in mission. I mean, sh should I go on? I see these things and I think, these are worth investing in. They're worth investing financially in. So imagine looking back in years to come and you might have given up a holiday in order to invest financially 
in the ministry of the gospel among us. You might have delayed buying a car. You might have even given up buying a couple of coffees a week. But on the other hand, imagine the joy of knowing that you have partnered in the ministry of the gospel that's going on among us here. I'd like to think that that is worth giving up a holiday or a car or even a coffee. That makes it seem insignificant in comparison. We don't know what God will do among us in the years to come, but we do know what he wants us to have as our motivating desire for life, to know Jesus and to see others know him too. And for that, to shape our choices in life, even our financial choices. And as we do that, we will discover that this is where the good life is truly found. Let's pray that we will. Heavenly Father, you know the temptations that we face. Jesus says we cannot serve both God and money, and yet we think that we can, or at least we try. Father, please help us to recognise that the true life, the truly good life is found in Jesus, and please help us to identify those areas of our life where we are seeking satisfaction in the things that you give us rather than in you and in knowing your son, Jesus. And Father, may that transform our hearts to give us joyful, willing generosity and partnership in the ministries that you are doing among us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.